Hi, I'm Janine. This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and standing by to join me are Fern L. Johnson and Marlene G. Fine. We're going to talk about their book, Let's Talk Race, a guide for white people. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Thank you. We appreciate your interest in the book. Yes. Thank you so much for having us. Well, the reason uh, I wanted to have you on, there's so many reasons, but one in particular, I'm really fascinated by the fact that we need to be better humans. And I gave a talk on that. I actually interviewed a couple of people. And one was a friend of mine who I grew up with in Connecticut, and he experienced a tremendous amount of racism. I had no idea. Um, and I feel like we just, we need an education. And I feel like that's what this book does. Absolutely. And um, I'm curious about your conversation with your friend um, and discovering that you you grew up with him and didn't realize how much racism he experienced. Um, We tell the story in the book of um, my being in a class one time teaching and having a conversation with my students about race and a white woman raised her hand and said that she didn't understand why we were wasting our time talking about this. Because she had a best friend in high school who was black and her friend didn't experience racism and a black woman in the class raised her hand and said, did you ever ask her? Exactly. Yeah. And she never had. And, you know, we go through life assuming that these things aren't happening because they're not part of our experience. Exactly. Well, I'll just tell you briefly. So my friend, Anthony, he, we, we lived in uh, Stanford, Connecticut, and we lived in the area of North Stanford. And he came home one time, forgot his keys. The next thing he knew, the police were there and they came to his door and they, they said, um, we got a call of suspicious behavior. Excuse me, suspicious person. He's like, really? Where? Where? <laughs> and he said, I live here. I live here. This, what did I do that's so suspicious? Yes. Absolutely. Yes, that's very similar to the experience of one of our sons when he came home from college one weekend. Uh, So he's African American with uh, the parents of uh, two adopted African American sons. And so one of our sons came home and he came with a a Latinx uh, male friend. Mm -hmm. And middle of Saturday, they were, you know, doing whatever they were doing, driving around, figuring out what to do next. And they stopped like one block from our house. And they they were deciding where to go next. And a police officer came, approached the car, asked them what they were doing there. We're breathing. And said, well, I live, I live right around the corner, asking sure. for a driver's license and told him to be on his way. Oh, <laughs> come on. Yeah, yes. I mean, you know, he did nothing. Nothing. Um, but, but being black. Right. So, you know, it, we just think that this notion of being human is so tied to conversation and the, right. the absolute rupture that, that we experience now and have always between really meaningful conversation about race. You know, white people avoid it for a lot of reasons or they don't feel they can talk about it. Mm-hmm. You know, they're going to say the wrong thing, use the wrong word create conflict. There are all kinds of things. Um, And a lot of that is tied to the fact that by and large, you know, we don't interact that much across the races. You know, we we live in segregated communities, even in big cities, neighbors are segregated. You know, our city where we, what city we live close to, Boston, 
Yes. It has more segregation in its schools today than it did during the famous really? uh, Boston, Boston busing. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. The schools are more segregated today than they were back in the 70s. Why is that? Well, it has to do with where people live. And so, um, you know, it, it is true if you go back and trace both federal government policies about neighborhoods and, you know, the famous redlining that went on in terms of identifying districts where allegedly the housing was riskier and therefore it was harder to get a mortgage. Or if you got a mortgage, you were charged much, much more. And so we have communities in um, large urban areas that to this day remain segregated where you have blacks living in one part of the city, whites in other parts of the city. Uh, then you had white flight out of the city, um, you know, later. Uh, so, you know, what we have been left with is a legacy now of segregated urban areas and then rural areas that are primarily white, they're 80% white. Wow, it's, it's so strange, we're in 2021. Yes, we're in 2021, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And, and most white people don't really know about this because we don't learn about this. You know, I grew up uh, in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, which nobody had heard about until Dante Wright was killed by a police officer there. Yes. And when I grew up in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, um, it, it, it abuts Minneapolis. It was all white. Um, it's not all white anymore. But I, you know, I didn't. I, I knew that black people lived in certain areas of the city, and then the Italians lived someplace, and you know, all the different ethnicities. But I had no idea that Minneapolis was a city with historic housing covenants, redlining, all the same stuff that you know goes on in in cities that nobody learns about and it, the legacy of that today is really one of the major problems that we live with yeah yeah and and so you know there were a number of things we wanted to accomplish with this book obviously we wanted whites to begin to understand types of racism and the ways in which we normalize, and because we normalize whiteness, we end up privileging whiteness. But we also wanted white people to begin to see the history of blacks in the United States and to see how the history of enslavement, the history of the Jim Crow era has led to inequities in education, in health, in criminal justice, and the wealth gap that exists today between blacks and whites. We also wanted people to become aware of cultural practices of some African-Americans that white people really misunderstand mm -hmm. simply because they don't know anything about them. Sure, yeah. And let's face it, I mean, children learn from their parents. They learn from opinions of their peers. And if they're not taught in the classroom, they're not really learning and understanding and breaking down pre-existing viewpoints that are outdated. Right, and they learn a tremendous amount from every mode of media. Yes. Um, and, yeah. and for uh, white kids, this, this is often the, the major source of learning. It's, it's not actual people that mm -hmm. they interact with. 
Yes. It's what they see what they see various right. media, what you know, they're in contact with through social media. Um, so let me back up a second. Um, the two of you decided to adopt two black children. Yes. Did you get pushback from family or friends? Obviously you didn't care because who cares, right? You do what you want. <laughs> but but did you get people sharing their unwanted opinion? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Although I will say um, when we decided to adopt uh, two black children or we decided to adopt a black child and then a second black child, okay. we spent a lot of time talking with black friends. At the time we adopted, which was over 30 years ago, uh, the National Association of Black Social Workers had made a public statement that the adoption of black children by whites was a form of cultural genocide. And so initially we were not going to adopt black children, um, but eventually we came to understand that if we chose not to adopt a black child, it didn't mean that that black child would end up in a home with black parents, uh, because even though blacks were adopting at very high rates, um, there were too many waiting children. Um, it, it meant that the children would end up in foster care over the long term. And so we talked with a lot of black friends, made the decision to do this. But sure, I'll, um, I'll tell you quickly a story about my own mother. My parents, who I thought were um, very progressive and had taught me uh, to really value all people, I thought, Mm -hmm. um, were thrilled when they knew we were adopting a child from another country. But when we uh, changed our minds and decided to adopt a black child from the United States, I uh, called my mother to tell her. And her first response was, birds of a feather flock together. Mar 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 what? Was talking, Marlene was talking to her parents on the telephone. And I'm within earshot. And I can hear Marlene say, what did you say, mother? Exactly. What? <laughs> and then the conversation ended, you know, very abruptly. And it didn't take too long. And her mother called back and she had a very different tone. And Marlene had been pretty clear that it was not her decision who no. we were going to adopt. And, you know, we would like, like them to be grandparents, uh, but that was their choice. Yes. Um, so, I mean, th things changed dramatically and they were loving grandparents and, sure. and that, that turned out to be fine, but it was shocking. Yes, it is shocking. Um, we were shocked by the number of people uh, who um, we didn't know. We might you know, be at a, a dinner party, for example, and having a conversation about the fact that someone would say, you know, you just uh, adopted a, a black infant. And um, someone would say, oh, is he very dark? You know, so we really related to the Meghan Markle interview um, because, yes. you know, that was our experience. Yes. Unbelievable. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I want to dive into the book a little bit. Um, I, I really thought it was it's so well structured, by the way. It, well, thank it, you. Thank it really you. gives a foundation for different things. Um, there are different types of racism you talk about, um, institutional, structural racism, internalized racism. Could you touch on internalized? Internalized racism, which I think a lot of people, white people especially don't recognize is when 
um, racism is felt by actually the people who are the targets of racism, who, mm -hmm. who are, are the ones who are affected by it. Um, it's, a, it's a wearing down of confidence often. I mean, we just heard an interview recently um, with uh, a woman who talked about how over a period of time, you know, through what she was told she couldn't do, you know, she'd never get into college X, you know, she wouldn't be able to get this kind of job or that kind of job. You know, she really began to, to doubt herself. And that's a classic example. Um, you know, we're, we, we spent our, our lives as college professors mm -hmm. and, and we know that it is so often the case that a black student particularly will be talked about by other students as somebody who got in because they were black, that they wouldn't be at this mm -hmm. college if they weren't black. Um, you know, Barack yeah. Obama wrote about that in his first memoir. Yes. Um, many, many black, black people who are accomplished professional people have had that experience sure. and they have to somehow get past it. I think for white women, one way of understanding internalized racism is to think about the concept that was, you know, popular in the 80s and 90s, the imposter syndrome. Oh, yeah. Um, and the idea that, you know, we just weren't good enough to, to be there, to be at the table with men in the corporate world. And you begin to internalize that, to believe that you're somehow deficient. Yes. That all the work you've done to get into this university means nothing. Yes, right. exactly, yes. Yeah. What do you think uh, schools can do, you know, baseline, let's say when kids are younger, middle school, you're younger, to start teaching about this topic? About the whole topic of race? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, curriculum reform, it is absolutely the bedrock of, of, of all of learning. And, you know, in fairness, some schools have done this and, and you know, continue to do it. But it is um, horrendous pressure and teaching anything about history, you know, for, forget race for a moment, teaching anything about history has to compete with STEM. It has to compete with you know, basic literacy issues for all students, you know, writing and, and speaking and, sure. and math skills and science skills, all, all of this and, and pre-professional stuff. Mm -hmm. it, this is, you know, it, it's a competition. And until, you know, more school districts, uh, particularly, um, you know, large public school, school systems, you know, can get a hold of curricular reform, you know, we're not going to make much progress. But then even given what they teach, there has to be vigilance in terms of reviewing what it is. I mean, there, there are children in this country who still learn that slavery was not the major cause of the Civil War. I mean, this is astounding. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. you know, th that's... Um, parental visual, vigilance, that's mm -hmm. vigilance uh, among teachers. 
And, and I think, you know, if you're talking about early childhood, um, it's important to talk to people who are early childhood educators, and, and we are not, and we would not claim to be, but sure. having watched our children at those ages, I think it's really important that teachers, educators really work on exercises and opportunities to talk about how to value the color of people's skin mm -hmm. and to look at different cultural practices. And I know a number of, of schools have begun to pull those kinds of things together. I also think it's really important that there be uh, in-service education for teachers. Uh, you know, one of the things that we discovered, and this starts at a very early age, even in preschool, um, teachers tend to have, white teachers tend to have lowered expectations for children of color. And they're unaware that they believe this and the ways in which they actually practice it. And, and so the kind perpetuate. of effect that has on kids. Yeah, they perpetuate that. Yes, right. mm -hmm. yes. And they don't know how to deal with things related to race yes. when they happen in the, in the classroom. And I think the easiest, the easiest example is the tendency to try to talk to, to children about how race doesn't matter. Well, in a lot of ways it does matter. I mean, there are some ways in which it is important to say it, it doesn't matter and it shouldn't matter. But, you know, we had an experience, you know, with uh, one of our sons when he was um, in, you know, elementary school and, and, you know, maybe advanced elementary school and they were talking about slavery a little bit, you know. <laughs> And the parent of one of his friends called us that night and said her, her son came home and he was crying oh. because his friend, his friends, you know, like ancestors were slaves and horrible things happened to them. And so obviously there was something that they talked about in the class that, you know, was about yeah. the bad experience of slavery Yes. Um, and then when we talked to the teacher about it, she said she was surprised that, that the boy who was upset hadn't said anything in class. Well, no. that wasn't a safe place for him. Right? Yes. No, he right. went home and he cried to his mother. Yeah. You know? Well, maybe he realized, well, not only did he feel bad and have compassion, but he, maybe that gave him an, uh, some uh, empathy moving forward in his life. Yeah, sure, yes, ab absolutely. absolutely. But, the, but the teachers seemed blindsided that, you know, someone would respond, that a child would respond this way um, to something really horrific. Um, we don't know what exactly she taught. We asked our son and he told yeah. us a few things, but you know, we don't know exactly what was said. Well, perhaps if they don't preface it with if you are upset or this bothers you, please be open. I want to hear from you. I mean, maybe nothing was said. Maybe it was, or he didn't. Right, right, right. Or, or setting up something in the classroom that makes it clear that we're going to spend some time processing this, that yes. this is not just factual content. It's also emotional content. Sure. You know, it's, it's a tough emotional subject. Who knows what she said to what degree? Right. You know, um, what else would you like people to know about your book? We wrote this book hoping that it would be useful to people. I mean, you know, back, back to the roadblocks that we have to talking about race. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to, 
to provide a good content base, but then we wanted to give these prompts to people to actually use this to help structure their conversations. So first of all, we do have personal prompts, which are indeed intended to be personal, to think about things in your own experience of views and attitudes you have, but then conversation prompts to bring to a group of you know, same race people or across race to actually structure a conversation and to help people stay with some of these conversations so that they can understand that people have different viewpoints, that experiences of people, their stories are important to hear because that's the only way we will develop empathy and understanding and trust and kind of get past whatever blinders we have or ignorance we have. Yes, absolutely. And I think that, you know, we, one of the reasons we wrote this book is because we had observed over a number of years that every time there's a racial crisis in this country, some event, horrific event that happens, people say we need a conversation about race. And then over time that just recedes from consciousness and the conversation stops. Right. So we really wanted people to, to begin to talk to each other about race. And, you know, I would say that that also means that people need to learn that it won't be easy. It will often be uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. There won't always be answers that we have to learn to live with different experiences and different points of view that we won't always come to consensus about things, but that we, we really hope people will use the book and try to talk with each other. Definitely. I, that's, I looked at the book and I, I looked at these topics, like why we need to talk about race and you break it all down different research and things. And I thought this is to educate us and to give us empathy in the world and compassion. Yes. We definitely need a lot of both. (laughs) Yes. We do. do. And it, it really starts when children are young, but my feeling is, and you brought up STEM and STEAM, if we can get that into place, we need to also think about racism and, and getting that to be the foundation in the curriculum. Yes, absolutely. And not, not as a token topic, you know, like, right. oh, we have to do this because, well, you know, there's a lot of political pressure to do it. Sure. It's important to the health and well-being of our nation. Oh, yes. I mean, racism, as the you know, CDC now says is a public health issue in a lot of different ways. You bet. Um, you know, and, and this, this, is, this is in everybody's best interest, morally, you know, ethically, but also just in terms of survival. Right, yes. Well, you mentioned something which I'm very passionate about, which is mental health, and this affects mental health. Of yes. black people, tremendously. Yes, yes. The, the amount of stress that black people feel because of racism uh, is just extraordinary. And, um, oh, Fern is showing me a quotation from Michelle Obama. Uh, yeah. The innocent act of getting a license put fe- puts fear in our parents, in our hearts and in parents' hearts. Um, you know, just, just thinking about, and we think about this all the time in terms of our sons, 
you know, when I go out and I'm driving on the highway and I tend to have a lead foot, um, I, you know, I know that I might be pulled over by a police officer, um, but I'm really not frightened by that. Um, I don't want it to happen. And I might be scared that I'm going to have to pay a ticket and pay my surcharge on my insurance, but I don't think anything physically dangerous is going to happen to me. Every time our sons are out driving, we have to think about that. And for mm -hmm. a black person, that has been a fear that has been in their lives from the beginning. Yes. And, and the kind of stress that that puts on you is, is enormous. Um, we talk about one of the privileges of being white is that you don't have to think about your race. But if you're black, you think about it all the time and you think everything that happens to you, good or bad, might be about race. Sure. And kind of stress that that creates day in and day out in someone's life is absolutely debilitating. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I wanna congratulate you on this book. I hope uh, people really dig into it and think how they can apply it to their own lives. Thank you so much for letting us talk about it. I mean, it, it is a book that we want to be used by people. And we hope that you know various groups that exist can use this book and that others will find it useful uh, for them structuring their own conversation groups. So you know, lots of different ways that the book can be used, but that is what our main purpose was in writing it. Yes, and thank you for letting us talk with you and share our ideas with you and your audience. My pleasure. And all the information about you in the book is on my show blog, which is getthefunkoutshow.kuci.org. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.